This is Acast Recommends. Every week we pick one of our favourite shows and this is one we think you're going to love. Who exploded Vivian Stone? Was it Screen Hunk McSalad? Mother's Digest called me dependably erotic. Leading Lady Joanna Shoebags. Oh, you call me dramatic again, I will die! First-time director Wallace Byrne Matravers. I think I'll just keep my clothes on for now. Assistant director Laura Sidesalad. If I can help you direct this film, I can certainly help direct your winkle. Technician James Wiggington. You've got a funny way of addressing a man holding a power drill. Or someone else entirely. Listen in to find out... Who exploded Vivian Stone? Acast is home to the biggest podcasts from the UK and around the world. Subscribe to this show and hundreds more now via Acast or wherever you get your podcasts. This week's episode of the Slash Filmcast is brought to you by Casper Mattresses. Get $50 towards any mattress purchase by visiting casper.com slash filmcast and using promo code filmcast. That's casper.com slash filmcast and using promo code filmcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Slash Filmcast, the official podcast of SlashFilm.com. I'm David Chen, and with me are... Devendra Hardware. And Jeff Kanata. And welcome to the show, ladies and gentlemen. Find more episodes of this podcast at SlashFilmcast.com. Email us at SlashFilmcast at gmail.com. Today, uh, we're going to talk about what we've been watching, move on to a couple of quick film news items, and then conclude with an in-depth review. This week, we actually got two in-depth reviews for you. Uh, we're going to dive into the Lego Batman movie, which is the spin-off slash sequel to the Lego movie, and then uh, also review John Wick Chapter 2, the new film uh, starring Keanu Reeves that is a breakout hit at the box office. This is one of those rare sequels that, A, people actually want, and B, is doing quite a, a bit better at the box office office than the first one. It made about twice as much money as John Wick 1, uh, making John Wick Chapter 3 seem uh, at least a possibility. So we'll see what happens with that. In any case, why don't we dive into what we've been watching this week? I want to mention a few things I've been watching. First of all, Magicians, Life in the Impossible. Have you guys heard of this movie? Oh, it's no. a movie? Isn't there a TV show called? Oh, it's The there Magicians. There is. I hear it's very good. There's I The Magicians on Sci-Fi Channel, which is a very yeah. good series. Um, but this is Magician's Life in the Impossible. This is a documentary recommended to me and actually uh, indirectly purchased for me by Peter Serretta. Peter Serretta gave me a, an Amazon gift card at one point in the distant past, and I used it to buy Magician's Life in the Impossible on Amazon. Peter Serretta, uh, amateur magician himself and uh, magic enthusiast. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Uh, and... This movie is a really interesting look at uh, the life of magicians. I, I think the title is pretty awful. Life in the Impossible is kind of cheesy. But if you ever wanted to know what it is like to be a full-time magician, this movie follows several magicians at varying uh, levels of success and takes you through what their lifestyle is like. And th- That being said, I gave Peter a very difficult time for telling me to watch this because while I did find the documentary to be quite engaging and I enjoyed the magic tricks that I saw depicted on screen, uh, this documentary is a festival of sadness, guys. I mean, everything in this documentary (laughs) that happens to these people, it's just all very depressing because 
you see magicians who appeared on Johnny Carson and uh-huh. uh, and who are very nationally well known. This one is, is magician, it all, just them all realizing magic isn't real. Like <laughs> slow. Oh man, Ma- the magic in life isn't real. I mean, the, the documentary is is pretty well made overall. Like, I, if, if you're interested in the subject matter, I would recommend checking it out. Uh, I got it during a recent sale. You could rent it for a dollar or purchase it for five dollars. So I purchased it for five dollars, um, and I, I don't regret that purchase at all. But yeah, it's. Uh, I, I would say virtually every single magician in this movie either goes through an incredibly demoralizing or depressing experience in this film or uh, something happens after the film was over that is incredibly demoralizing or depressing. <laughs> uh, and like you, that just called being a performer? Oh, that's fair enough, Jeff. Fair enough. I mean, I would say you get the same thing if you watch Beyond the Mat or The Comedians or, you know, it's like any of those sort of solo journeyman uh, performer lives uh, documentaries. It, it is just a festival of sadness, as you said. It's it's very, uh, you know, sad clowns. Yeah, no, I guess that's I guess that's true. I'm trying to think. I, I don't know. It feels to me, Jeff, like there are some industries where uh, your outcome could be slightly less depressing. You know, so uh, Louis C.K. did this bit recently on Conan, where he was talking about how uh, trying to become a dancer in like Alvin Ailey. Uh, a very famous dance troupe is an incredibly poor career choice because right. if you try to become a musician, uh, worst case scenario, uh, you are playing in you know Conan's late night band or you're playing in a wedding band or a, a bar mitzvah band or whatever. You know, there's stuff you can do to put food on the table for your family. Uh, if you try to be a dancer uh, and don't succeed. Firstly, do you even know any famous dancers in your life right now? You know, very few. And then there's not that much you can do to make a living as a dancer other than potentially stripping. You know what I mean? Like there's just – there's not <laughs> no, that many I'll tell you, backup I'll tell you exactly points. what happens because yep. I dated a dancer through college and I'll tell you exactly what happens. Tell me exactly what happens. You teach dancing. Oh, yeah. Well, that's not, that's not a bad – Mostly to six-year-olds. There you go. There you that's go. Really so, but there's, the, the thing is there's not that many backup – uh, occupations you can have. You know, you know what I'm right. saying? And that's true of magicians too. It's not like, oh, hey, I tried to be a magician, a magician for 10 years and now I'm going to go uh, you know, be a product manager somewhere. You, know, like you, can't, <laughs> you, you can't do that. You can't, um, it's difficult to parlay it into something else other than magic. That being said, right, right. these guys get a lot of meaning out of magic. And it's something that you, know, you said before on the Slash Filmcast, Jeff, that these pe- like, if you're thinking of going into show business, do anything else. And if you can't, go into uh, show business. And that's right. kind of what these people did. They, they tried to do other things other than magic. But ultimately, it called to them, and that's what they ended up doing. So, uh, so I, But I would also say that magic is one of those industries, like dancing, where it's just harder to make a decent living if you aren't one of the greatest, right? If you aren't one of the five people in the world that everyone knows about. Uh, and this movie certainly illustrates that very vividly. So, if you ever go to the Magic Castle, for example, and yeah, Los that's part of a huge part of the movie. Huge part of the movie. Yeah. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, uh, I really want to watch this now. Yeah. Um, you know, you meet a lot of just sort of working class magicians, and most of them are also you know real estate agents or teachers or used car salesmen or whatever. And then they you know have a gig on the weekends where they go and entertain the Kiwanis Club with their magic. You right. Know, that, that is a great way to do it, in my opinion. 
That yeah. is a great way to do it, right? And uh, the people in this movie are all doing magic full time, and it's a lot more challenging. So, right. uh, but check it out if you have a chance. Magicians. Life in the Impossible, uh, it's available on streaming on iTunes and Amazon. Uh, when I bought it, it was $5. It's probably more money now. Uh, but it's an interesting look at the life of magicians. Okay. Uh, that's one thing I've been watching. Another thing I've been watching is also the Oscar-nominated short documentaries. Now, I want to tell you guys, uh, as we're recording this, it's Monday, February 13th. Uh-huh. Uh, tomorrow is Valentine's Day. Uh, do you guys have any plans for Valentine's Day? Yeah, I'm gonna make yeah. some dinner. Make some dinner, Jeff Canada. What are you What are you up to? Yeah, we're um, you know, we're we're having a making a, a day of it. We got uh, I got some got my, my wife a massage, so we're you know very cool, very yeah. cool. So uh, I are you asking me out, Dave? No, that's I'm wondering if you're busy that night to see if we can yeah. hang out. Uh, but uh, you know, I, I decided a couple years ago that hey, I, I am not doing the Valentine's Day rat race at like restaurants. Instead, oh, yeah, that's a mess. Yeah, I'm you never going, want to do that. That's a way to get yeah. Yeah, so uh, I uh, took my significant other out to Valentine's Day dinner yesterday uh, when there was basically no one at the restaurant <laughs> and the prices were a lot cheaper. Uh, and so, yeah, awesome move in my opinion, and uh, I'm glad to have a significant other that is okay with that. Uh, because I, I advocated for this. Was it on this show? Possibly. Possibly. Because yeah. uh, I got a tweet today uh, <laughs> saying, from a guy saying that they're doing that. I'm doing the, your plan about doing the day before. And we're, I'm so excited. And I was like, oh, yeah, I did say that at one point. Did so, you? Uh, I, anyway, I'm pretty sure I said we, that. I think maybe, that sounds like something I said. You know what's interesting? Sometimes people misattribute things people say like on the podcast. <laughs> Yeah. I've gotten tweets from people saying, oh, thanks for recommending Blah, this thing that Devendra actually recommended. Yeah. Uh, but anyway. Oh, yeah, that, that happens happen. all the time. Yeah. yeah. But in any case, uh, we, we're all in support of the not actually going out to restaurants on Thanksgiving uh, – not Thanksgiving, uh, Valentine's Day evening. Uh, so take, take your loved one out to Valentine's Day. Another night, it's going to be much cheaper and much less crowded and not insane. Uh, or so, dinner yourself. So we're wrapping up dinner. Yeah, make dinner yourself. That's another great option. So uh, you're, we're wrapping up dinner. And uh, we we went to dinner pretty early, and so we said, "Hey, uh, what else? What else can we do? Let's not just go home. Let's let's go do something else. What about? How about we go see a movie? Let's go see a movie." Uh, and so I pulled out the phone, looked up uh, in Fandango what movies are playing around me. Oscar-nominated shorts, uh, short documentaries. Actually, were playing at Sundance Cinemas in uh, the U District in Seattle. And uh, I had, you know, I just finished making a, a short documentary, and I've been thinking about, uh, you know, what kind of short documentaries I want to make in the future. And so, hey, let's go, let's go check out Oscar-nominated short documentaries. This seems like a great idea. Well, we got to the theater. Uh, the program was, I think, two and a half hours long, which is not what we expected. Oh, <laughs> and man. then uh, it is a. Uh, <laughs> It is a stroll through human misery all around the world, <laughs> essentially, is what Oscar-nominated uh, short documentaries are. I mean, uh, last year, I think, it was actually even more brutal than this year. But uh, uh, there were five documentaries this year. Um, I will name them. Uh, Extremis, Watani, My Homeland, 4.1 Miles, the White Helmets and Joe's Violin. You guys hear about any of those films by any chance? Uh, yeah, I think Extremis at some point. Extremis but, uh, is 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 either on Netflix now or is uh-huh. going to be on Netflix. Uh-huh. Uh huh. I, 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 I do have to say, Dave. Like the, I think the <laughs> warning sign here 
is you went into a situation, right? Yeah. You don't you know they're Oscar nominated, so they must be good on yep. some sort of level, but That's you don't right. know like what kind of good, right? You don't know the level of quality. <laughs> it's two and a half hours. Yes. So, well, yeah, by the time okay. we had we had yeah. uh, learned that it was two and a half hours, we had already bought the tickets. So. Okay. Uh, but uh, yes, three of these documentaries are about the Syrian refugee crisis, uh-huh. and it's very difficult not to read it in some way as a pointed critique of the U.S. policy and, and attitude towards uh, towards the refugee crisis. Uh, I am probably going to do a, a bonus episode talking about this, or some article at Slash Film talking about each of these films. Uh, but I will just say for now that uh, by far the best one, in my opinion, was The White Helmets, which coincidentally is also a short film that you can watch right now on Netflix. Nice. Yeah, uh, yeah. And it's 40 minutes long, and it's about this group of volunteers that uh, is in Syria that helps save people when uh, you know an attack occurs. Yeah. And also a great organization to donate to as well. Read quite a bit about them. Yeah. Uh, there are visuals in this short film that are mind-blowing. There is there is a moment in this short film. If you watch this short film, which I would recommend, there is a moment in here that feels incredibly similar to Children of Men, only it happened in real life. Oh, and, uh, I don't know if I can take that right now, Dave. It, it, is, it is amazing that they got this footage. And, and, and it's so inspiring, Jeff. Like It's so inspiring because – you know, there's a lot of people right now, I would venture, who are disengaging, you know, with what's going on in the world there. Oh, Trump is in charge. And why even try? What's what's the point? You know, uh, I, I'm not going to be civically engaged. These are people who freaking when they hear an explosion, they run into it to save people. That is their job. Oh, yeah. And yeah. Uh, when you see something like that, you, you think to yourself, wow, A – None of my problems compare to what these people deal with uh, on a daily basis. Uh, these people have saved uh, – I think the number was 58,000 lives in the last five years. Um, and so none of my problems compare. And so it, on that level, it's really good at putting things in perspective. And on another level, it's, it's a situation where these people continue to wake up every day and go do this thing even against stupefying odds. Like can you imagine the the bombing is getting worse every day? It's not getting better. Mm-hmm. Uh, more people are dying, but they're still getting up. They still feel like, hey, I got to do this. I got to save these people's lives because if I don't do it, who else is going to do it? And that is remarkable. And I think it's worth checking out because, you know, it's a, it's a true story of people doing incredibly heroic things who you won't read about in the news, unfortunately, uh, and they deserve recognition. So I would strongly recommend you check this out. And fortunately, Netflix is getting in on the short film game, and that's awesome, and they're giving exposure to films like The White Helmets. Uh, so would recommend you check it out. Uh, that's The White Helmets. It's by far uh, my favorite film from this uh, Oscar-nominated documentary shorts. But I would also say another incredible one was 4.1 Miles, which is a New York Times documentary. I don't know if that's going to be available as well. That's uh, about the uh, refugee crisis as it pertains to people crossing into Greece uh, from the Syrian refugee crisis, I think. And mm-hmm. it, it's from the perspective of the people who like, are, are the Greece equivalent of the Coast Guard. So these people were not trained to rescue hundreds of people every week who are riding in on these boats, but they do it anyway. I thought it was a very unique way to look at this problem. So so it was (laughs) – these short films are emotionally devastating, 
but well worth watching, and I have no regrets to checking it out. And uh, certainly, if I, I understand if you don't want to watch the full battery of these, but at the very least, check out the White Helmets. Forty minutes of your time; it's on Netflix right now. So, okay, uh, what else do I want to mention? One other thing, guys. I did something. I pulled a, uh, a Jeff or perhaps a Bleff. <laughs> uh, I, I feel very bad about this, guys. Okay, here's what happened. I was at a Christmas party at a friend's house. <laughs> so this and, was either not recently or a weird ass Christmas party. <laughs> I I actually uh, remember this very vividly, and I felt very bad about this when it happened. Okay, but here's what happened. I was at a Christmas party, and we were talking about TV shows that we all appreciated. And someone at the Christmas party who I uh, quite respect and am uh, a fan of, uh, she started talking about – we started talking about Six Feet Under. And she said, oh, my gosh, that finale was so good. And then she started to go into it, and I said, whoop. Nope, I'm sorry, I haven't seen it yet. <laughs> Ten years? How long has it been? It has been uh, about twelve years since the Man. Six Feet Under season uh, series finale. But uh, you know what, though, Dave, I I still think that is the best season finale of all time. Oh, I so really you've seen do. the show? You're familiar with it, Jeff? Oh, I love that show. Oh, yeah, was I was going to ask you guys before we started, like, is it okay if we talk about the finale on this podcast? So you've yeah, yeah, yeah. everyone has seen it, right? So I it is. I think it is the the best series wrap up finale. Ever. All right, all right. So, uh, so you've been warned that I may. I'm going to try to avoid spoilers, but I may or may not drop a spoiler for Six Feet Under season finale, uh, or series finale, I should say. Uh, but that made me feel like complete and utter crap, guys, because that is not a reasonable statute of limitations on nope. on spoilers. Twelve years. Yeah. If if she if no. it had been what what's a movie if it had been like uh, the leftover season two or something, I would have felt way okay saying oh sure. i'm sorry i haven't seen it yet i'm still trying to catch up yeah but it was six feet under which is almost 12 years old and i had been i had well are you were you the only two people in the conversation no there were a couple other people there well yeah, then so all you, you do is you, you just you should just walked away yeah you just extricate <laughs> yourself from the, from the conversation well, you know, i was, I was the main contributor to the conversation so, <laughs> wanna... so you were the conversation lead I, I, yeah i didn't want to were... i didn't want to abandon this conversation that i was <laughs> deeply integrated into these people can't survive on their own without me <laughs> that's right that's right <laughs> jeff like several jeff, slash film jeff, crimes here jeff you get it Jeff, you get it. <laughs> they, they would just stand around and go, you guys remember when Dave Chen was here? <laughs> so uh, so let me say this. Uh, I So I felt really bad because it was way past the point when, it, in my opinion, it is reasonable to say something like that. Like, it, I, you you guys are right. You should just leave that conversation. That's what, you, that's what I should have done. You do not stop someone from talking about spoilers for a 10-year-old show. But I'm here's the thing. Sh- I pretty sure we talked about the finality of that show so this is mind-blowing to me right now so here's the thing is you don't uh so i i had always intended to go to go back to that show just like i'd always <laughs> I always have intended to watch firefly at some point right sure and uh and i just never got around to it i never got around to it and then and then so she said she said oh come on this show is almost 10 years old i said i know but seriously trust me i'm going to finish it very soon and she says, okay, fine. You better finish it in like the next month because otherwise uh, you just gave me a hard time for no reason. So then the timer has been set. I got to start watching the show again. Now, of course, it's been a little bit over a month, but uh, I had a little bit of extra free time on my hands. And so I thought to myself, you know what? I'm going to finally finish Six Feet Under because I've heard that that finale is one of the best ever. And, I've heard, and I did have a really deep attachment to the show when it was first uh, airing. And it's on Amazon Prime streaming. It's on HBO Go. 
So I fired it up, and I, I stopped watching the show right around the time when David Fisher was brutalized by a hitchhiker. And in fact, a lot of people I've talked with uh, have said the exact same thing. Like, that's the oh, yeah. moment that they stopped yeah. watching the show. That season it's, was a mess. It yeah. was rough. Yeah, yes. and the end of season four was disastrous. The, char- the characters uh-huh. that you knew and loved became very different people. Uh, and very unlikable. Yeah, they were very, very unlikable. And actually, by the end, they s- remained largely unlikable, in my opinion. But I'll just say this. Firstly, I wrote a whole huge blog post about this at DaveChen.net. So check it out there if you want my detailed thoughts. But it is, in my opinion, that was the perfect way to get back into the show. I resumed mm-hmm. watching mid-season four, so there's only about 15 episodes left. And so I had just enough time to kind of get invested in the show again without getting sick of the show. If I had started all the way at the beginning or in season two or whatever, yeah, I, I don't think I would have been able to make it all the way through. Um, mm-hmm. But it, that's kind of like the perfect time to rejoin the show is kind of midway through season four uh, out of this five-season arc. And... Uh, Man, this show still holds up in my opinion. I mean, even though I think the characters are largely unlikable and uh, they they become Im- unbearable by the end of the show, and so I actively disliked many of the characters by the end. Uh, <laughs> I still really appreciated what the show was trying to say about life and death and about love and how and how we live our lives, right? And it's about. Yeah. I would say the two biggest messages for me from the show are number one: death can come for you at any time in any place. And it, death does not wait until you have your affairs in order. Uh, it just happens. And, and, uh, and therefore, number two, all you can do is live your life in a way that uh, you find gives you the most fulfillment. Like don't try to live it for someone else. Don't be informed by fear. Love who you want to love. Do what you need to do because you never know when your life is going to be taken from you. Uh, you only have one life to live, you know, and those are the two overarching messages. And I think the movie, I'm sorry, the show makes those points really, really well. So, uh, and also the finale, a lot of people like it. I thought the very, very end with all the flash forwards was a little bit silly in my opinion. Um, oh, I love it. Yeah. It's the first time I'd ever heard Sia. Yeah. Like, who, who is this Sia? This is amazing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, but that was also, you know, 12 years ago. So that's yeah. right. That's right. I think what's amazing about the show is it, it holds up in the in the sense of like a lot of the stuff the show was doing uh, was pretty revolutionary at the time. The show looked amazing. I, I bought season one on DVD when that cost sixty five dollars for one season of HBO shows and DVD. Now you can get like the whole show on Blu-ray for like fifty dollars or whatever. The whole season or the whole series, I should say. Uh, but or you could just spend like what fifteen dollars a month and watch the whole thing. Yeah, or or, or like all, all yeah. Or or Amazon Prime streaming. If you already uh-huh. have it, you can watch the whole series as well. And so it's uh, but but they were. It was one of the first shows to show like a gay couple on screen in a normal uh, relationship that just was uh, pretty unremarkable. You know, like still very uh, an interesting relationship, but not like the, their homosexuality was not a massive part of the focus of that relationship. And uh, that was. Uh, really cool that it was groundbreaking that way but also the the show looked amazing it had a really interesting structure with the death at the beginning of every episode and um and the writing and the performances were on a caliber that it feels like you know people don't really think about or talk about as much but this was right up there with the sopranos in my opinion oh definitely Um, so at that time it was the sopranos and six feet under and that and then everything else well the shield but yeah so (laughs) yeah i think i think people uh don't talk about the show as much. One, I was trying to think, why don't people talk about the show as much when they talk about the greatest shows of all time? I think one reason is it kind of sputtered out by the end of season five. Uh, it kind of ran out of ideas, in my opinion, by the end of mm-hmm. season five. But another reason is that 
it's not a very rewatchable show, right? Uh, it's it's incredibly unpleasant. You, you don't want to go back to that time that oh, let's go yeah. watch that episode when uh, uh, David uh, Fisher was brutalized by a hitchhiker. You know, like no one has a desire to go see that again. You know, yeah. Um, whereas like you could easily watch some of the Sopranos episodes. They're they're thrilling. They're exciting. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, and James Gandolfini is amazing. So anyway, just some speculation as to why. Six Feet Under is not regarded as much as the other greatest shows of all time. Uh, sounds like you guys are a fan and would recommend also finishing the show. Yes? <laughs> yes. I would have recommended this 12 years ago, yes. <laughs> all right. That's what I've been watching this week. Uh, Devinder Hardwell, what have you been watching? Um, a couple of things. Uh, I did check out the first episode of Riverdale, the new CW Archie show. And, uh, yeah, I, I actually really like it. I don't have any attachment, really, to the Archie characters. I kind of know who they are because uh, just they're so embedded in pop culture. Uh, but I've never really followed the comics or anything, and I don't. they don't really mean much to me. Um, but this show is just a really well-done teen drama, basically. It's really well-written, well-acted, uh, looks amazing. Um, it has some great actors, too, including an older Luke Perry, who's really, uh, I, I kind of dig him in this role. Um, so, yeah, as a teen CW show, it's good. That's kind of all I can say. I have I have no judgment on Archie as an Archie property, unfortunately. Have you guys seen this thing? No, uh-uh. uh, but one of my co-hosts, Joanna Robinson, uh, this is one of her most anticipated TV shows of the year. Oh, I'm it's sure also, she's happy. Yeah, I hope. Uh, yeah. It's also something that gets quite a bit of uh, discussion in the Slack filmcast. So uh, I've heard good things about it. So glad well, they've to done that you're some. A fan. They've done some really interesting things with the comic book. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, the horror version of the Archie comics. I can't remember what it's called. I can't remember what it's called. Yeah. Um, it's got like, I can't remember. Anyway, um, very, very good. It, it like zombie, they get zombified and start killing each other. And the, the fact that they were willing to take such chances with that IP has mm-hmm. been fun. So hopefully the TV show is as daring and fun as well. Yeah. And I, I don't really have much of a tolerance, honestly, for uh, like CW teen romance shows, uh, just because I've given a lot of them a shot, uh, either for the superhero stuff or for other things. And this one is just pretty good. It feels a lot better and smarter. And uh, I kind of I dig these characters. So that's I'll Riverdale. It's airing on CW right now. And uh-huh. what else am I watching, Devendra? I also did see the uh, Girls season six premiere. Uh, which is very good. I will just keep every, as whenever I can talk about girls on this show, I will do that because it's one of the best things on TV. Um, despite all the controversies, like from early on, like I think the show really grew into its characters. The writing team is incredible. This is, uh, this is the final season, though, if I'm not mistaken. This is the final season. Yeah. This is a show that just can find humor in so many strange things. Um, it's funny in a way that doesn't feel funny, right? They don't set up the jokes. These are just jokes that kind of happen uh, because of the characters. So, yeah, I, I just want to say, like, to everybody who started, maybe fell off of this show, it's definitely worth catching up. Uh, honestly, it's worth just watching if you've never seen it before. This premiere episode also uh, guest stars Riz Ahmed as a Long Island surfer bro, which I think is the like most hilarious thing I can think of because... Uh, yeah, just just imagining Riz Ahmed like that. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's funny, great role for him, and uh, I, I think the show just really gets these characters, and I think that's important for any drama, really. But few shows understand their characters as much as Girls does, uh, and I know a lot of people just hate these characters, and that's why they don't watch it. So yeah, I, I can't blame them. 
but it's a good show. It's a great chat, show. Chat room uh, got our back. Moldy Pizza says mm-hmm. it's Afterlife with Archie is the name of the comic. There you book, go. Which got is it. very good. It's very, very good. Cool. Uh, Girl Season 6 is airing on HBO right now, and this is the final season. Jeff Kanata, uh, all of us watched a show that we were all looking forward to this week, Legion, the new FX original series by the creator of Fargo. He wrote uh, and directed the season premiere of Legion in addition to creating the show. So this guy is a you know quintuple threat or whatever. But uh, Legion aired this week. What were, you, what were your thoughts on Legion? Um, I was impressed with Legion more than I, wa- I enjoyed Legion. Uh, yeah. I, you know, I'm very curious as to where it's headed. Um, I, I don't know if they'll manage to continue every episode like the first episode. In fact, the ending certainly indicates that we're kind of spinning off into a new direction, but maybe not. I mean, it's the main character in Legion is a superhero that has, you know, multiple personality disorder and is, you know, has all this sort of inner life that is uh, turbulent and, and chaotic. And the show in form is trying to put you in that experience uh, of, of being sort of not clear on where the th- what the thread of narrative is true and what isn't. And, you know, it, it's constantly jumping around through time and sometimes in someone's mind and not in someone's mind and very trippy visuals, beautifully shot. I mean, it, it, we're at the point now where TV shows look like films and even mm-hmm. even superhero TV shows can look – and given the money and care necessary to look striking and beautiful and cinematic, uh, and this this one certainly hits all three of those. It, you know, it, it asks a lot of the viewer. Um, I don't think it was entirely successful throughout. I, I found it. It's a ninety minute premiere, and I really think that was a little long. Uh, yeah. It kind of it kind of meanders a bit. Uh, and shows you things that I'm not really sure we needed to spend time doing, but the end certainly you know hits with a punch that that is is pretty fun, and you go, oh, okay, well we're in a superhero show now. Um, I'm I'm curious where it's headed. What did you guys think? Uh, yeah, I thought it was good. I wrote a, about uh, this a bit more at my blog, but I thought it was an interesting uh, combination of two things that you usually don't see together: two storytelling devices, the unreliable narrator and the nonlinear story. Uh, which are actually uh, The Usual Suspects is another uh, mm-hmm. show or film, I should say, that pulls that off really well. This one, I thought, barely pulled it off. Legion, I think, barely pulled it off and made it feel coherent. And uh, But I, that's an, an immense difficulty to do something like that. I agree with you, Jeff. It's visually spectacular. There is uh, There felt like – I don't even know if they were conscious homages – but like with Noah Hawley's show Fargo, there's a lot of stuff – like a lot of elements of Fargo season one certainly reminded me of Coen Brothers films. They seem to be mm-hmm. taken straight out of Coen Brothers films. Um, it seems like he's drawing from a variety of different influences. There is a uh, – the opening sequence seemed to me straight out of Zack Snyder's Watchmen. Uh, I don't know if you guys remember the opening mm. sequence of Watchmen. Yeah. But the yeah, slow-mo yeah. flashing through different time periods, uh, incredibly meticulously composed. And then there is uh, – a dance sequence that felt like it was out of Ex Machina, you know what I mean? Like with the all these Ex characters Machina. just dancing. Yeah, more the, like uh, out of Beetlejuice. It sure, was sure. bizarre yeah. and silly. The, yeah. Well, uh, yeah, the I guess just the color palette reminded me of uh, of Ex Machina, um, and that how crazy and psychedelic that scene was in that show, in that movie, I should say. Uh, so, a lot of influences in the show. 
I, I do I do think that um, as we've seen with It Follows and now Legion, trying to exterminate a supernatural force using water and a pool is generally a bad idea. Uh, <laughs> but people keep returning back to that. Anyway, I thought it was very interesting and certainly enough to keep me checking out the next yeah. couple episodes. Well, it, it looks good, and that's what we keep coming back to. And I do have to say that. Like, I love the fact that No Holly Kit has the ability to create this weird ass thing. And, uh, you know, it's on, and it's not even on like a, like a strange network either. It's FX, right? So this is a pretty, it's not like Fox. It's not like mainstream, but it's, it's still something that's pretty accessible to people. Um, the, but the writing feels like it's all over the place, right? I, I almost feel like the show itself is as overstuffed and manic as the main character. Uh, so many great ideas, but I don't quite care for what is happening to David Holler. And yeah. that's the bigger problem. Like I need to, I need that emotional core. I need to know why are we spending 90 minutes on all this stuff? Uh, Cause I can get the gist of it. And this is part of the problem I had with Fargo season one as well too. I think it, that season kind of lacked character motivation in a whole bunch of, whole bunch of important storytelling elements. And this one, I hope won't rely on the flash too much. And I hope it settles down and gives us more, but Dan Stevens is fantastic. He's unrecognizable. That. So good. I, I mean, he looks yeah. like, uh, you remember Captain America, the first Avenger, uh, mm-hmm. how, uh, Chris Evans went through, he was like a tiny guy. And then he went into the, like the, in, like into the tube and then he becomes a big guy. You remember uh-huh. that? Uh, this feels like Dan Stevens went through the reverse <laughs> of that from the guest to this movie or to uh-huh. the show. Like the guest, he was like this incredibly jacked buff guy, and now he's a tiny stick figure character. Did we? I uh, mean, I, I don't know if we could say stick figure. Did we see him shirtless at all? I don't know. I, I don't, don't know. He, if he's looks like, he looks like he has a lot less mass in this show. Uh, <laughs> it's a remarkable yeah, transformation, yeah. in my opinion. I love what Aubrey Plaza is doing in the show. I don't know, but that's also one of the things that kind of annoyed me too, because like something happens to her character that's pretty important, and it feels like the show glosses over it in like ten or fifteen seconds, and we're not quite sure what happened. You don't have the time to really take in. Yeah, uh, it does seem happened. like she's going to be a recurring character, though. There's I'm, a lot I'm of sure, that. sure, but it's very she's recurring in a different way, and they're still like, yeah. hey, something important happened, you know, to somebody that this character was close to. Let's uh, let's acknowledge that. Let's yeah, but, but Jeff, you were saying that that stuff happens a lot. Like, there's some crazy yeah. happenings in this episode that are yeah. barely acknowledged. I agree. Yeah, and there's a moment at the end. I mean, I guess this is kind of spoilery, but there's a moment at the end where one character says to another, "I love you," and you're like, "Whoa, what? Went? Whoa, really? Yeah. Yeah. We're there? That's where we are with yeah. this relationship? How did that happen? Yeah, the, not quite enough to make you buy that. Yeah. Right. I agree. So there are some problems, but certainly I think we all agree uh, we're going to keep going, right? We're going to keep yeah, watching yeah, the show. Yeah, for sure. We'll and keep see, watching. We'll just, I, it's only eight episodes, too, so I think it's a very manageable amount to consume. Uh-huh. So. Uh, Devendra, what was your I also want to say was? Katie Asselton. Yeah. Also, kind of, uh, I didn't realize it was her, even though she doesn't look that different than what she normally does in like the league or something. Yeah, when I saw her, I thought to myself, I recognize that yeah. person, and I had to look, yeah. I had to look her up. But yeah, she's a very talented actress. Uh, Mark Duplass's wife, if I'm not mistaken. So mm-hmm. uh, anyway, uh, very interesting show, Legion. It's airing on FX right now. Jeff Canada, what else have you been watching? I checked out uh, Santa Clarita Diet on Netflix. Oh, yes. um, I am an Ola fan. Uh, tried and true. I mean, that guy. If I had to make out with a dude, I would make out with Timothy Oliphant. <laughs> I mean, I, I don't want to make out he's with any that dude. Kind of really. dude. You know, like dudes just want to love him too. Uh, he's yeah. the coolest. Du- he's the coolest. 
He's the coolest. Um, I'm a massive fan of Justified. I just I missed. I'm an old fan, and and uh-huh. so uh, th- and this show is just uh, chock full of people that are cool. Uh, mm-hmm. Drew, Drew Barrymore is in it. Um, Patton Oswalt is in it. Uh, Nathan Fillion is in it. it. I mean, it's 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 chock full of talent. There's lots of really cool folks in it. Um, I, do you guys know anything about this show? Yeah, I'm, I'm almost done with it actually. So. Okay. Uh, I got through two episodes and 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 stop. Uh, I <laughs> wanted to love it, and I tend to love shows like this. I love quirky, uh, stylized shows. I mean, the perfect example of a show that I just adore to my very core is Pushing Daisies. Right, Pushing Daisies lives in a in a world with rules that are all its own. And I love shows like that. Another example would be um, Scrubs. You know, Scrubs, it's mm-hmm. creating its own reality. There's no – it's not grounded. It's its bizarre. It's silly. You know, and, and this show is that as well. It's trying to be that. And so I should love it. And I and it's got people I love in it and it's a you know a genre show and, and it really kind of does genre with full gusto yes. and really goes there and tries to have humor and boy, it just really fell flat for me. It it, it didn't hit the mark. Um like I said, I got through two episodes and they're only half an hour episodes, and I turned to my wife and she was like, I could keep watching. I'm like, I don't want to I, I, I don't i don't i want to watch something else now um so the one thing i will say um i have a follow-up on that point jeff but continue it nails santa clarita <laughs> as somebody whose wife and family lives in that area oof, it nails santa clarita big time zombies uh, everywhere yeah zombies everywhere. <laughs> um but i don't know are you enjoying it more than i, I did? you know it does start off a little rough uh i think the pilot at points is actively bad uh but yeah the what you're saying like there are so many people here i just enjoy i love seeing timothy oliphant be kind of a whiny loser like i because we've seen him be like the man for so long right he could he could just walk in there and shoot everybody and walk out and kick ass but to him being like yeah just (laughs) hang out with jeff uh him being just like a whiny uh passive bit of a loser dude is kind of funny I, do, I find that hilarious just on the face of it. And he really commits to it, too, maybe overly so at times. Drew Barrymore, um, I love – you could tell she just loves doing the really, really gross stuff. And this is like she's done a lot of gross stuff in movies. Um, and I I feel like she's just having fun. I really like the, uh, the actress they got for the daughter. Um, it feels a little like Weeds meets uh, Shaun of the Dead or something. It's a little irreverent. And yeah, like character motivations are all over the place. Like people just accept certain things like, oh, I guess my mom's a zombie now. Oh, I guess we're going to have to like start, you know, doing things to feed said mom or something. Um, But at the heart of it, it's a really heartwarming show about family and like doing like crazy things to stay together in a relationship. And, you know, I, I, I like the characters and I like where they're going, but it's definitely a rough show for sure. All right. Well, that's Santa Clarita Diet, and it is available right now on Netflix. Devendra is a slightly bigger fan than Jeff Kanata. Uh, Jeff, I, I just wanted you to know, you were talking about how your wife was watching uh, the show with you, and I, I remembered how uh, I have recommended things to you, to you that you've watched <laughs> with your wife that now you basically – neither of you trust any of my recommendations. That's absolutely true. Um, yeah. And, Dude, you, in fact, Dave, I, I probably shouldn't tell you this, but <laughs> – 
<laughs> okay, you're there's coming. a framed picture of you at Jeff's house. <laughs> just a list of things. Yeah, <laughs> it's like yeah, written in lipstick next to it. Um, no, the, I will. I'm not even exaggerating <laughs> at all. But when we watch something and it's bad, uh, my wife turns and goes, "Did Dave recommend this?" <laughs> Every time she's like, "Is this a Dave Chen recommendation?" <laughs> wow, that is uh, that's uh, brutal. That's gonna make it awkward. That's gonna make it awkward next time we all hang out, Jeff. <laughs> it's like, hey guys, I got this great restaurant idea. No. Uh, anyway, I, I bring it up because uh, I recently recommended a uh, a film to a colleague, uh, Chris, who's also a slash filmcast listener. He might be listening to this episode. Uh, the film was called Dear Zachary. Have you guys oh, seen God, that? What film? have you done? <laughs> no, oh no. God. There what? is a there is that a very legitimate just... reason. There is a very legitimate reason why I recommended the film. It was for uh, a work related purpose. Uh-huh. And uh, he he texted me today. He said, "Hey, Dave, uh, my wife woke up on Saturday and watched Dear Zachary. A few Wait. things. Number one, profoundly moving film. Uh, but also, my wife will probably not watch any more movies recommended by you. She was completely <laughs> devastated." <laughs> And I yeah. just thought to myself, well, this is a work man, like I, I need a movie to crush my soul. <laughs> I'm not sure I've that and like uh, United 93 are the movies that, uh-huh. you know, like just utterly tore my heart out mm. and stomped on it. Uh, yeah. Jeff, I have some Oscar nominated documentaries to recommend to you. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, yeah, apparently, you know, people who I respect, uh, their wives hate my movie recommendations. <laughs> you know, it's well, going it. around. You've cultivated a certain reputation. You can't win them all. You can't win them all. Uh, Jeff, anything else you've been watching? Uh, Yeah, real quick. I want to actually mention something that I can recommend with full-throated enthusiasm, (laughs) uh, and that is Abstract. Uh, I don't know if you guys have heard about this show on Netflix. Mm -hmm. It is a documentary series that is all about design. Yeah, I saw this, yeah. You watched it? No, I, I saw it. It's like it popped up in the you know Netflix new releases. It's yeah. really good. It's really really good. You would love it in particular with your love of documentaries. I mean, it, it isn't about any weird fetishes or anything, but uh, I oh, think well, they forget about it, Jeff. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, it, it's you know it's all about design. The first episode's an illustrator that does a, a bunch of stuff for the New Yorker. The second episode is the guy who like you know designed all of the Jordan Nikes. You know the Michael Jordan Nikes. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then you know it has interior designers and it has architects. It really, it it each episode focuses on a very you know a one individual tells their life story, but it does so with uh, you know where the show itself is just beautifully designed, beautifully shot. It really expresses. It's kind of about creativity, and it's trying to sort of express creativity in in a film medium, and it's really inspiring. It's it's about brilliant people being brilliant. And it well made great subjects. They're being very honest about their process. Uh, just a fantastic, fantastic show. Awesome. That's abstract. Glad to hear it's good. And it is on Netflix right now. You know, Jeff, uh, good design can make your life easier. You know, it can improve a lot of things about your existence. Mm. Uh, a well designed phone can make it easier to communicate with people. Well designed mattress, one could say, make it easier to get some sleep. Also helps you communicate with people. You know uh, I mean? Yeah, that's right. I'm not sure what you're implying there, but because uh, you have to have sleep to communicate. Oh Dave. yes, there you go, there you go. Well, in any case, Casper is a sleep brand that has created one perfect mattress. 
that's sold directly to you, eliminating commission-driven and inflated prices. Its award-winning sleep surface was developed in-house, has a sleek design, and is delivered in a very small box that makes you wonder, how did they do that? Uh, I sleep on a Casper mattress every night and find that it is a great experience. Um, Not only is it... Uh, very well designed, but it is also a very fair price that is delivered straight to your door. Uh, and you know, when you get the mattress, you have a hundred days to try it out to prove that uh, it's the right mattress for you. Uh, now, we all we all know that shopping at a mattress store is a huge pain in the ass, right? I mean, it's it's gross, it's, it's awful, it's terrible, it's, gro- yeah. it's gross. You, you're you're you know, I, I pass by a mattress store every time on my way to downtown Seattle. And you see people like lying there in the window on the mattress, and it's just very weird. It's yeah, just, how long have they been just like, there? Yeah, I just awkward. need a break. I just need a break from life. <laughs> you don't want to lay on a mattress that someone yeah. else has lied on. Yeah, you don't want to. You know, when you lay on a mattress that someone else has laid on, you, you know, it's like you're laying with like every single person that has ever laid on that. That's mattress. ever considered buying that mattress. Yeah, yeah, that's right. That's right. But. With Casper, they send it to you. You don't you don't have to just lie on it for five minutes and try to figure out whether you're going to buy it. You get to take it in, make it your own, put your covers on it, sleep on it, yeah. spend a month. No, how about three months, <laughs> three months on it? Yeah, and then make a decision. And if you don't want it, they it's not like you have to figure out how to get it back in that tiny box. Yeah. No, no, they come to your house and they pick it up. And they give you a refund if you don't like it. So yep. there's very little to lose and a lot to gain with a really well-designed mattress at a very fair price. Uh, and we've got a special offer for Slash Homecast listeners. Get $50 off any mattress purchase by going to casper.com slash filmcast and using promo code filmcast. That's $50 off any mattress purchase by going to casper.com slash filmcast and using promo code filmcast. Casper's a great sponsor. They make great products, and uh, I'm a big fan of their mattresses. And this is one of the best mattress shopping experiences you'll ever have. We hope yep. you'll consider going to casper.com slash filmcast using promo code filmcast. Jeff, what were you going to say? Well, I don't know if I'm supposed to say this or not, so you can cut it out if we, if we have to. But okay. Awkward Grapefruit in the chat said, and if you return it, they just burn it, LOL, ha, ha, ha. But what they actually do if you return it is they donate it to charity. Which yeah. is pretty amazing. Uh, I think that's a, a beautiful part of their business model. It, you know, I, I don't think you'll probably want to return your mattress because they're comfortable. But if you do, no, it's not wasteful. It's not like they take your mattress and then try to sell it to somebody else. They give it to charity, which is yeah. pretty cool. Yeah, they're a great company, a great sponsor for the podcast. And we hope you'll consider saving $50 off uh, a mattress purchase by going to casper.com slash filmcast. And using promo code Filmcast. Uh, thanks to Casper for sponsoring us this week. Thanks also to all the people who donated to our podcast. Lisa T. from Canada, who I think is actually in the chat room, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, really appreciate her very generous donation. Thanks to Michelle L. also for donating to our podcast. New subscribers at the rate of $2 per month, Paul Hasty and Michael Smith. Thanks so much for your contributions. If you want to support what we do here on the podcast, go to slashfilm.com. Click on the Slash Filmcast tab. Use the PayPal links on the side of the page. Uh, and all the money you donate helps to defray the cost of seeing movies and helping to put on the show. We really appreciate all of our fans who donate every week. And again, to our sponsor, Casper, for making this podcast possible. Let's move on to uh, – we just got a couple of quick film news items. And then let's get to our review, guys, because we are running short on time. Uh, Mary Poppins coming back, guys. You guys are Mary Poppins fans? Yeah, I, uh, how could you not be? 
I probably watched this movie, you know, 50 times when I was a kid. My my mom was a musician, so this is a big deal for her um, that we like this movie. But yeah, Mary Poppins Returns is a sequel to the 1964 live action uh, musical classic Mary Poppins that has Emily Blunt starring as the main title character. Yes, please. Uh, Ben Wishaw and Emily Mortimer are also uh, in the cast. And the supporting cast also includes uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda. Uh, so that should be uh, interesting. His, his star is rapidly rising. Do you think Mary Poppins should be reinvented for the modern era, guys? Do you think this this uh, property has anything new to say? No, honestly, <laughs> I don't. I mean, I, I think it. This may end up being a good movie, and I hope it is. But we don't need to do this with every every IP. I mean, Mary Poppins can be can just be one movie and be fine. There, uh, Disney is remaking every. Uh, like all of their cartoons as live action films, but this one was already live action, was it not? Yeah. <laughs> so well, no, it's, it's not a remake; it's a sequel. Yeah, it's a sequel. and that's kind of interesting too. I think. Uh, yeah, and anyway, like the cast, I love the cast. Uh, I'd love to see what they do with this. I'm not as like attached to Mary Poppins as other folks, I guess. Apparently, in the sequel, uh, Michael and Jane are now grown up uh, and have their own children and stuff. Um, so yeah, it's, it's kind of a, a way of reintroducing this generation to Mary Poppins, which I'm not necessarily opposed to. So yeah, we'll see. I we'll think see. you can show them the original Mary Poppins to introduce them to this, <laughs> but okay. Fair enough. Fair enough, Jeff. Is that what you're like? I guess, Jeff, you are now running into the situation where you need to start deciding what movies to show your kid or not you're not starting to but eventually you will need to make those decisions right right what yeah. order to show the star wars movies to your your son what, in? what order to show the mary poppins films are you not going to show mary poppins to your kid of course i would <laughs> yeah so yeah, no, mary poppins the, is great man but, but if it had just come out you know the new one you wouldn't show the new one to your kid you know what i'm saying like well maybe i I'm, i was being flip but uh <laughs> if it's good i i hope so i just don't I don't know that that story needs to be expanded uh, upon. You would, know? You, would you demand they see the first Mary Poppins first, though, right? <laughs> you wouldn't show them Mary Poppins Returns before they see Mary Poppins. Yeah, no, I guess. I don't think I so. I guess you'd have to. Yeah. See? Anyway. Uh, another piece Talk of about film. cultural impact, by the way. Yeah. <laughs> there is a musical. There's a Mary Poppins musical. Yeah. I don't think well, it's ever going to leave New York. Very culturally I don't think relevant. you could say supercalifragilisticexpialidocious to anybody and that they don't understand what you're talking about. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. Uh, also, Castlevania animated series coming to Netflix. It's another uh, big deal. Now, Jeff, you host a video game podcast. Uh, I assume you're a Castlevania zombie from way back. Yeah, I mean, Castlevania was never one of my main jams, uh, but I love Castlevania. In fact, you know, Castlevania has become a genre, right? Metroidvania is now our that uh, that 2D side scroller, like you know, can revisit a place and get you know go back and forth across the screen. Has become a genre. It's so ubiquitous. So. Um, uh, but Castlevania is sort of cheesy uh, uh, Indiana Jones meets Van Helsing. Yeah. So I'm not sure the IP itself is screaming out for uh, narrative treatment, but it's the guy who did Dread and uh, Judge Dread and the producer um, Adi Shankar and uh, Warren Ellis, the comic book writer, as now, well as uh, he's ex- written all of it. Which is that kind of is yeah. the most exciting part is that yeah. Warren Ellis is involved because yeah. wow, I mean, he, talk about. A-list comic book writer. 
to see what they do with this. I'm, I'm very curious. Is it going to be animated? So, uh, and they say it's going to be not for kids. So it's mm. going to, you know, kind of a, an adult version, which I guess adults are the people that are into Castlevania, not kids. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Uh, well, it looks like it'll be pretty exciting and it's going to be coming to Netflix later this year. Uh, so yeah, those are just a couple of quick film news items, but we got a double review to do tonight. So let's just get straight to our review of the Lego Batman movie. Great to be Batman. Batman, we love you. Thank you. I'm blushing super hard under the mask. Batman. Pray God. Thanks, Batman. I can only imagine he's going home right now to party the night away, surrounded by friends and lady activewear models. Hey, computer. I'm home. I'm home. I'm home. Master Bruce, your greatest fear is... Snakes? No. Clouds? No. It's being a part of a family again. No, now it's snake clouds because you put that idea in my head. That was from the trailer of the Lego Batman movie, uh, the newest film in the Lego franchise of films. Not a thing I'd ever thought I'd ever say. It was directed by Chris McKay, and according to the plot summary on IMDb, Bruce Wayne must not only deal with the criminals of Gotham City, but also the responsibility of raising a boy he adopted... This movie stars Will Arnett playing Batman, Michael Sarah as Robin slash Dick Grayson, Rosario Dawson as Batgirl, and Rafe Fiennes as Alfred Pennyworth. Uh, Zach Galifianakis also plays the Joker. Guys, this movie is also executive produced, I believe, by Steve Mnookin, who is uh, our new treasurer, uh, treasury <laughs> secretary as of today. So yeah, uh, that's good. No, that's no good. Hollywood elites. That's great. That's great. You know, yeah. the guy who made Lego Movie is now going to be helping to run our economy. Uh, so the movie, at least, is pretty good, right, guys? Huh? Uh, yeah, do, it is. Jeff, you shared some of your thoughts last week. Devinder Hardwar, what are your thoughts on Lego Movie? Oh, I really, I, I really enjoyed it, and uh, it's hilarious. Um, it's not as like meta as the Lego movie was because that one like presented the world within the world and we saw what was happening outside. This is just like a very, pretty much a straightforward Batman movie, but kind of a great Batman movie. It's such a great commentary on the character and, uh, kind of how we treat him and how we, uh, I don't know, just there, there's so much emphasis on Batman as like the one who will save us all. And this movie, it's just strange to me that this movie, of all things, is the one that just calls him on his bullshit and, uh, like, has the logical reaction from the Gotham police to be like, hey, maybe we should, uh, you know, actually capture these people and uh, keep them away for good or something. And maybe we shouldn't let this one do just do everything. Um, I think it's just such a smart movie and there's a great heart to it as well, just like the original Lego movie. So, yeah, love pretty much everything about it. And, uh, yeah, just even... The voice cast, like, I'd actually recommend, um, if you haven't seen this movie yet, don't go to IMDb. Don't see who are playing some of these characters, because a lot of them are just really fun things uh, to find out after the fact. Yeah, yeah it's I, one of those, you know, one of the one of the problems, I think, with, with animation nowadays is that you immediately identify that famous person who's playing that role. And I... I don't think that, especially the Joker. I was like, I don't know who that is. As I was watching it, uh, and to find out later, it is a super famous person. So yeah, I that was cool. Uh, I, I like it when they don't emphasize, they don't lean into a character's celebrity in some way, or or have that character right. do something really different. Um, I enjoy that. But yeah, I mean, I was very moved by this story of, of a billionaire 
who uh, was so incredibly lonely that he acted out in bizarre ways and yeah. pursued all the accoutrement of the billionaire life only to find them ultimately unfulfilling. But enough about Donald Trump. Let's talk about more of the Lego movie. Um, I oh, goes the, movie. the dynamite. <laughs> Thank you, Jeff. I thought uh, this movie was decent. Uh, I was not as big of a fan of it as you guys. It, it, I think... Here's what I really liked about the Lego movie. I thought that the visuals were amazing. And and the uh, visual gags, it felt to me like so much work went into some of these gags for uh, jokes that literally are on screen for maybe a second. Right? Yeah. It goes so quickly that you barely comprehend it. But someone clearly had to animate this entire tableau or, or whatever – um, like as an example, I'll just give one quick example. There's a scene that's very that's been online. It's in the trailer where Robin is trying out different outfits, and uh, there's one that is smelly. And then you see like these little tiny Lego pieces floating in the air that indicate like these bright green uh, Lego pieces that are floating around him that indicate like his odor. Uh, and that's on screen for maybe half a second. And it's a it's a joke about how you know oh these bright green pieces can rec- re- uh, represent. Uh, a guy smelling bad and it's very funny but it goes so quickly uh, there's just so much energy throughout this whole movie they're throwing all this stuff at you and uh-huh. a lot of it is uh is very like visually spectacular and so i really enjoyed the visuals and the energy of the movie but ultimately i think you run into kind of jack sparrow syndrome and what i mean by that is uh, Lego Batman is an awesome side character in the Lego movie because his personality is by design very abrasive and annoying and uh and a side benefit of that is occasionally he's funny uh but it's he's great in small doses like jack sparrow is but when you try to make him the main star of a movie like what you did with on stranger tides the result is not quite as good as when he was a side character and i think uh this movie suffers a lot from that i think the plot is pretty thin uh, not much happens. It's not it's certainly not as ambitious as the Lego movie, the original film. And then the character just started to wear on me over time. I liked yeah. his I arc. Mean, I liked his arc. I really appreciated that. Uh, there's an arc. But, You're saying not much happened. Yeah. No. Uh, I mean, uh, I, I, it's, it's I a very. If anything, I'd say it's a very similar arc to what we had in the first Lego movie, which is another one about a father figure trying to communicate with his son. Like I wish. It had done a little more than that, but right. But there, I guess the Lego Movie also yeah. had a lot of um, it had a lot of novelty going for it, and it also had, like you said, the meta aspects of it. You know, with there's some the, yeah, the yeah, master yeah. builder and all this stuff was so clever and new. The, the the contrast between master builder and people who just follow the instructions and and kind of commenting on that in in a way that felt organic to the story. There's just basically a lot novel and innovative about the Lego movie. Right, right. This movie is more coasting off of the world that that movie has built uh, and, and telling a fairly effective story within that world, uh-huh. but not, in, to, in my opinion, adding anything new, although I readily admit I don't know what that would even look like. <laughs> I mean, right. I, I just feel it's unfair to say it's coasting when you just said, like, there is so much in here. Like, there's so much inventiveness to a lot of these scenes and a lot of the jokes and the way they put it all together. And I'm not going to mention kind of where it goes towards the end, but I think, like, just the way it even deals with that, like, uh, other worlds, you know, bringing in some of those things I thought was really fun and inventive and a great uh, – we've lived through so many Batman movies, guys. And I love how this movie comments on all of them. In a way. Um, and also, a lot of those movies had terrible villain plots. 
And if this, you know, if Batman actually existed in the same world as Superman, this is a pretty good Joker plot. Like, honestly, like this is right. th- this is actually a really inventive and fun and genuinely like scary thing that could happen in a world like this. So I don't know. I, I appreciate that. Like, I love the fact that they actually thought more about the villains and kind of the logic of their plot and everything here uh, compared to even like Batman Begins, which is about mist that has to be microwaved. From the water supply. <laughs> I will like, say. I will say this. This is the third movie featuring Batman that we've seen in the last year, uh, including Suicide Squad and uh-huh. Batman v Superman. And, and this best. is the best of those movies. Right? Yes. For sure. Way better than either of those films. And it's more fun. It, it's it's better action. It has more to say about the Batman mythos. <laughs> the visual effects are better. Yeah, it's more <laughs> consistent with what we know Batman to be. Yeah. yeah, more realistic-looking actors, you know. <laughs> yeah, uh, you're you're right, Devin. Maybe I'm going a little bit too hard on this film. I did have a great time. There's at- so many in jokes in this movie, man. Like yeah. I cannot wait to rewatch it. Like there's just so many things. The, the like shark, the, the shark, shark repellent. repellent. The uh, yeah. I, I love it when they flash backwards through the different yep. uh, oh, so Batman great. films. Yeah, yep. there, there, there's a lot of great stuff in this film. But yeah, I, I guess. Um, I don't know. In ultimately, in the end, it just didn't. I, I was left with a uh, sense of wonder and joy when I watched the Lego Movie, and maybe I also left with a sense of wonder and joy when I saw the Lego Batman. But it was much more muted. But it was quickly extinguished by reality <laughs> as you stepped out of the theater. <laughs> no, I just, I just mean I don't think I felt them quite as acutely as I did when I saw okay. the Lego yeah, Movie. Yeah, yeah. And part of that is yeah. because they're trying to thread a really. Um, thin, you know, needle. I guess in in Lego Movie, like take this product that's literally bricks or you know mm-hmm. interlocking bricks and make it into something that is fun and exciting and also is commenting on the act of building itself. And this is this merely felt like a uh, I, I don't know, not not as revelatory as that movie for me for me, uh, but still still a whole lot of fun. So, Jeff Kanata, any other thoughts about uh, this movie? Well, I'm, I'm curious if, if now that you guys have seen it, what we talked about a little bit last week mm-hmm. with the, with um, the sort of meta ness and the irony that is pervasive, especially in the opening sequence of this movie, um, and it's the ironic take on Batman being like a young person's first taste of what this character is yeah did did you look at it through that lens at all i think it's i I thought it was completely fine jeff i think the reason it's fine is because even though it's all posturing the stuff in the opening scene it's all posturing and when he's talking about how cool he is and how badass he is then he goes home and needs to microwave lobster thermidor by himself which (laughs) by the way i i you know i consider myself uh, a bit of a foodie. I've eaten at a lot of restaurants in, in Seattle. I actually you would did never microwave lobster. Well, thermidor. first, I actually did not even know what lobster thermidor was. Uh, I had never, or if well, so I heard you're of not it, a, you're not a billionaire. That's right. For those who don't know what lobster thermidor is, is, is an incredibly elaborate dish that features lobster. And yeah, you should not microwave it. But uh, <laughs> it, it, you know, he goes. But how and, great was that shot when he's microwaving it and the bat like? Uh, a shadow is like going back across the <laughs> yeah, back wall. It's, it's like, amazing. Oh, it's amazing. It's so good. Uh, but uh, it's all positive. He's revealed to be incredibly lonely, and he, his life is not what you would envy. And and I think there is a good lesson in that for children, right? That hey, you yes. can be incredibly successful on the outside, be incredibly lonely on the inside, and really, family is what matters more than any of these outside, you know, accoutrement of billionaire life. 
And and so ultimately, it didn't bother me at all. Devinder, what do you think? Oh, yeah, I think so. And also because these kids, it, this won't be the only Batman thing they see. They're kids. Like, there, there's so many Batman cartoons still around uh, that they're making from the WB. Uh, I'm sure they'll still end up seeing Suicide Squad, you know, and that garbage. Um, there, There's an idea of Batman that's out there as, like, this, you know, this lone vigilante who's so awesome and so great. And I think it's really smart. Like, to me, this is a really fun and fascinating way of looking at Batman because it kind of twists the cookie cutter idea of the character on its head little and will make kids think like i always i honestly loved it when uh you know properties did this when i was younger like just made me think a little bit more about what these characters could be yeah i was reading i think it was Shay serrano wrote this article in the read the ringer about how movies are great when they make you think of something realize something that you should have realized a, a long time ago and right. one of the characters in the movie says commissioner gordon's daughter says Hey, if Batman's so good at his job, why is there still all this crime going on? Yep. yep. <laughs> you know, and you're like, mm-hmm. you think to yourself, wait a second, yeah. If Batman is really good, why why does there seem to be the same level of crime all the time in Gotham City? I love the crowd murmurs in yeah. those scenes. You were like, oh, it's got a point. Yeah. There's so many. There were so many moments in that movie where I I said to myself, oh, what a phenomenally crafted joke. Remember that joke. Remember remember that joke so that you can remember. And then. Two seconds later, there's another amazing joke, and so I don't remember half the jokes that I wanted to remember. And you're so right, Devendra. I, I can't wait to rewatch this to like remind myself of all those great zingers that this movie has. Yeah. Uh, well, anyway, any other thoughts, guys? I think you guys loved it. I still quite enjoyed it, and I think we'd all have no problem recommending this movie to anyone, uh-huh. adult or child, to uh, check it out. Yeah? Absolutely. All right. That's our review of Lego Batman movie. Let's move on to uh, a very similarly themed film, John Wick Chapter 2. Welcome to Rome. Is this a formal event or a social affair? Social. How many buttons? Two. And what style? Tactical. Mr. Wick, do enjoy your party. How good to see you again so soon. You have no idea what's coming. You want a war? Or do you want to just give me a gun? That was from the trailer of John Wick Chapter 2, the new film starring Keanu Reeves, directed by Chad Stahelski. Uh, I'm going to read the plot summary from IMDb. After returning to the criminal underworld to repay a debt, John Wick discovers that a large bounty has been put on his life. Uh, This film stars Keanu Reeves, Ricardo Scamarchio, Ian McShane, Ruby Rose, and Common, as well as uh, Lance Reddick and Lawrence Fishburne. Uh, and John Wick, this is a movie that really surprised us when it first came out. No one really saw it coming. I think it dropped at Fantastic Fest or one of those genre mm-hmm. festivals. It was made for around $20 million, made over $80 million worldwide at the box office. It was a hit. Uh, this one now comes out a couple years later. A lot more people have had a chance to discover this movie on video on demand, on home uh, video. It is doing really well. And anecdotally, I will tell you that I was talking with my significant other about this movie, and I was wondering, like, why Why does this movie... Uh, see, for me, it seems to appeal to more women than other mindless action films. 
And I wonder, uh, what is going on? Is it the styles, right? Emotional is it, core, guys. Is it the emotional core? Right? And, and um, puppy, yeah. uh, her response was that it's a uh, – when you watch uh, a movie like by Arnold Schwarzenegger or whatever, there's a lot of like macho mm-hmm. posturing and a, a lot of off-putting sexism in, in a lot of those action movies. And this movie ha- these movies have none of that, right? It, it's just – this is a guy – who just wants to sit at home and think about his dead wife, right? And, <laughs> and that's all he wants in life. Let him sit in misery. Just, he just wants to sit in his incredibly modern, stylish house <laughs> and think about his dead wife. And uh, and he doesn't want to go back to this life, but... Hey, maybe, maybe do a little uh, concrete work on the side? Yeah, that's right. But, you know, they pull him back in against his will and... Okay, I guess he has to kill all these people, right? And he's like, and that's kind of uh, anyway. That was that was my significant other's take that there's a lot yeah. of the things that make regular action movies unappealing are not in this series of films, mm-hmm. uh, which I thought was an interesting take. But uh, Jeff Kanata, you know, you said Keanu Reeves was woefully miscast in John Wick One, and uh, what did you think? Do you, do you buy him any more as this character in John Wick Chapter Two? I. I... Did I say that? <laughs> yeah, you, said, you said it was great, except Uh-oh. you thought that he was cast wrong. Like you, you didn't um, think he was the right char- the right actor for this role. I, I have to say that I one of the things that I think is most impressive about both of these movies is there is never a moment when you don't think that that's Keanu Reeves doing all of that. Yeah, yeah. And mm-hmm. his physicality like, is amazing. In this, he's series. like pushing fifty, right? Yeah, yeah. And it. it there is no moment where you're like, well, Stuntman did that part. Uh, he it, – it really feels – I mean I know there obviously were lots of stuntmen. But he – A, does a lot of it himself and B, it is, it is executed in such a way, so to speak, uh, that makes you feel like that's the actor all the time. And yeah. I think that is uh, – it's part of the joy of a Jackie Chan film and that's really I think the goal of any action movie where you, you – you are persuaded to believe that what you're seeing is really possible by human beings, right? Um, so in that sense, I really admire the action. I'm I'm a little shaken uh, by this review. It's funny that you brought up my, my original John Wick review because uh, I got a tweet this week from somebody that said, hey, man, I'm not going to let you get away with liking John Wick 2. I'm not going to let you – you know, it's not – I can't remember the exact wording, uh, but it was something to the effect of like, you know, don't think you can get away with it, Jeff, or something like that. And I was like, and I responded, and I was like, what's going on? He's like, well, you tore the first one in half, and I was like, I did. Uh, my recollection of it, and I did not go back to listen, but my recollection was it of it was that John Wick came out right around a time where we, there was a, like a number of really high profile shootings. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And mass, mass casualty shootings, usually by a deranged individual. Yeah, yeah. And we were sort of in that – I mean those things happen all the time. But the, the, they were particularly high profile and we were particularly consumed as a culture with this uh, – the gun control issue. And so I was watching that movie through that prism and found it hard to find escapist joy yep. in the wanton killing of people because they you know, hurt his dog, right? And the way the, the sort of the movie revels in shooting people in the face and has this fetish, fetishization of of guns. Yep. It, it, at that time, watching that movie, it really made it difficult for me to enjoy it. Now, that to me, I don't recollect that as being ripping the movie in half or tearing it down or anything. Uh, maybe it 
did sound harsher to people at that time. I also remember really uh, praising the movie's world building and and the creating of this kind of fun underground society of assassins and the rules of the assassins and all of that stuff that the movie invents. Uh, I remember liking that, and I think I mentioned that in our review. I will say the sequel doubles down on that in a really fun way. And I think whereas the first movie is a pure revenge film, this movie takes place inside that assassin's fictional world much more. And I think makes the movie for me a lot more fun because it, it's much more a comic book film now. Uh, still that revelry in shooting people in the face is, is present, but I think the movie's action sequences also expand a little bit. There are, there are things that happen in this one that are more than just, I mean, there are certain gun set pieces that are really intense uh, and, and, you know, effective and impressive uh, but also the game, the movie has lots of, uh, fun doing other things as well. Um, I enjoyed this movie a lot more. I think that has in large part to do with the fact that I'm not thinking about a shooting that happened just recently, but also I think the movie itself is having more fun and, uh, going deeper down the rabbit hole of like, what's this secret society all about? Who are these assassins? And he's killing assassins, right? He's, He's mowing through uh, or you know, being challenged by – and I also feel like the character himself is more vulnerable in this one. In, in the first one, he is this unstoppable force that seems inevitably going to murder you. And this one, it seems like he's much more the underdog, and I think that's more fun too. So I, I, I disagree with you on that last yeah, point. I yeah. mean th- this is a movie where he has a bulletproof suit. Yes. You know? <laughs> he he's has, Superman um, in this movie, Jeff. Yeah. Yeah, I guess, but he's Superman where all of the supervillains are activated at the same time to, to come yeah, after. Fair enough. That's, fair enough. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so, yeah, you know, movies and our reactions to them are a product of their time, you know. And uh, to your point, Jeff, about – firstly, here's something I've learned over the course of my time writing about movies, podcasting about movies. Uh, fans never forget anything you say. <laughs> you know, uh, they, they never forget anything that happens in the movie world, right? And – uh, their their memory is measured in decades uh, <laughs> of of things, and so so people will often bring up opinions that I've said that you said, Jeff. You know that I literally don't remember. I don't remember yeah. saying you yeah, know yeah. this thing, right? That that people that's so vivid in someone's mind, but I literally don't remember it. Because maybe Jeff, you were feeling off that day. Maybe you just read this story of all these people that died in a in a shooting. And you thought to yourself, man, it's really hard to enjoy John Wick this week. And and I and I hope. That that's the sentiment that I expressed because it's the sentiment I remember feeling, which is, I wish it was possible for me to enjoy this movie now, and yeah. it isn't. You know, yeah. and it, and even watching John Wick two, you know, this movie fetishizes guns in a really intense way, especially yeah. this the wine tasting scene. You know, oh my gosh, and, I know, and and it's like that in the first one too, where it's like. It, it's it's it, the, there's no sex scene in the John Wick movies except for when he's fucking a gun, you know. Like that's <laughs> that's how I mean that's what happened in the first movie when he like you know breaks open the ground and right. and the guns like ejaculate up into the sky. You know, it's, <laughs> it, it really is that level of of gun worship. Yeah, um, yeah, so. and it it makes me a little bit uncomfortable. I'm not. I, I let me just put this out there. Love John Wick Chapter Two. I actually wanted to see this movie a second time 
before I recorded this podcast because I'm such a big fan of this movie and the first movie. I've seen John Wick 1 maybe five times. So uh, listeners, these thoughts can coexist at the same time, right? You can love and enjoy something and also be made deeply uncomfortable by certain aspects of it. Um, But anyway – Couple points I just wanted to make there. Number one, movies and how we view them are a product of the, you know that moment in time. And two, the world never forgets, even if we do. Um, and this is an interesting dynamic when it comes to uh, film podcasting. Uh, it, it, Jeff, your your views were actually brought up in the slash filmcast Slack this week. People were like, "I wonder if Jeff's going to have the same reaction to John Wick Two as he did to John Wick One." It's, um, but in a much more inquisitive and non-combative way than um, than you got on Twitter. Uh, uh, I have some more thoughts, but uh, Divinjara, why don't you weigh in on John Wick Chapter Two? What do you think? Oh, sure. Um, yeah, I loved it. Uh, I, I love the way it expanded the world that we got a glimpse of in the first film. This whole idea of a secret society of assassins and all the stuff they're doing, playing with the coins, like what's happening there. Hey, hey, so Dindra, I, here's what I found out about John Wick uh-huh. Chapter 2. Yeah. Everyone is an assassin. Everyone is an assassin. <laughs> Every, at least assassins in, everywhere. At least in New York. Oh, yeah. a, the, the, the exchange <laughs> yeah. rate for, for those coins is baffling to me. Because like, yeah, I don't know how a coin, like, a coin buys a cup of coffee, but it also like room? pays pays off a dude. Yeah, and what a room and like nobody can make change for one of those things. It's yeah. it's very difficult. None of it makes sense. <laughs> uh, but I, I just love that and the comic booky aspect of it and the sort of like uh, professional respect people have too. Like I, I love the the first conversation between John Wick and uh, Common's character Cassian it's like you're working and John Wick's like I'm afraid so and I love that just like geniality of it um I, and I love the action too although I think uh I know that I guess that'll need a deeper discussion because overall like there's some really great stuff here there's some sequences um that are so inventive and so fun and so interesting that I honestly haven't seen them in a movie before too yeah. like there's a there's a casual gunfight where they're just like strolling through a subway station and like Common and John Wick have silencers and like just it's just so well done. And I feel like there wasn't enough of that. But what we got was a lot of uh, very repetitive action that we had seen before in the series. So I wish it mm-hmm. had uh, doubled down a little more on new stuff. Um, there's an opening sequence that is just baffling to me because it's John Wick and his supercar uh, versus taxi cabs. I'm like, guys, what what is your plan here? You just you, look at his car, look at your car. What's going to happen here? Um, and like that entire like, I lo- there's a chase before that. That's a lot of fun. That's how the movie opens. But that fight uh, in the taxi area just felt like there there wasn't anything interesting about it. And that got me a little worried about the movie. There's a fight through like a, uh, a set of catacombs here that feels a little video gamey and not as interesting as it could be. Because I think back to the first movie, right? There are so many set pieces in that movie um, that are just like burned into my mind. Like the the takedown at the club where you, you know, the guys are in the pool, like all of that. Well, I definitely think visually uh, the catacombs set piece didn't live up to uh, what I had hoped. You know, the, yeah. the establishing shots are really great. And apparently that woman uh, who he's trying to assassinate, like, lives there. Uh, mm-hmm. She lives under the catacombs. She's got a whole pool and everything. Well, yeah, her, her home is connected. She's in a mansion, but she's connected to the catacombs, you see. <laughs> yeah, fair enough. Um, yeah. But, uh, Devinder, I disagree. I actually think that uh, this movie did a much better job of sequencing 
the action scenes in the first one. In Maybe my opinion, sequencing. in my opinion, yeah. the uh, action scenes peaked in John Wick One with the first two action scenes. You got the assault on his home, and then the nightclub uh, scene, which was the highlight of the whole film. Uh-huh. And then it kind of peters like he kind of spoilers for John Wick One. He kind of incidentally shoots. Uh, Alfie Allen's character, right? Like the, he attacks him at his while he's playing video games. He kind of just oh, he just shoots him a little bit while walking through a fire, and then ends the movie fighting a grandpa in the rain. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it, that's, it, not, that's not the best. AKA that's Michael Nyquist, who's very, who's actually you know very physically capable. But you know, it, yeah. it felt incredibly anticlimactic to me. This movie, I thought, started with a couple action scenes that were okay. Like you said, I don't think they were the strongest. But then they really ramp things up as uh, as the movie goes on, and I think the ending totally was satisfying to me. So I don't know. Like I'm of the opinion that you need to at least start by wowing me. You know, mm-hmm. like I I'd rather have I'd have, especially if it's the opening action sequence, right? You you're you're trying to say you're saying something, you're making a statement, and if your statement is I don't know how to make this sequence more interesting. That's not a good sign. Well, I, I think you're going very hard on this. And, and John Wick no, One no. didn't even John Wick One didn't even have an opening action scene. Yeah, you, you, had... you know what it was doing? It was building character. Mm, it was okay. building motivation. I will give you. I will give you that one. I will give yeah. you that one because so I that think movie. I think as ludicrous we... as the plot of John Wick One was, at least there was an emotional core to that yes. film. And this one, I feel like, falls flat on that front. I yeah. think it's quite a bit in John Wick One before we even like get to the action. Right, you really got to build up to it. Yeah. That movie had such a great emotional core. Like it's not just. Yeah, the guys didn't just kill a dog. They didn't just steal his car. Like that—that that was like his last, you know, connection to his wife and everything. Like it—it's silly. It's a little hokey and pulpy, but it—it it meant something. And I think Keanu Reeves really sold it. This movie is like, okay, well, he got to get the car back because that's a plot point from from the first movie. <laughs> yeah. So we did that, and um, everything after that, it just didn't feel like there wasn't as much momentum. It felt like things were. In a, in a weird very, way. Very plot-driven and not organic. Plot-driven, yeah. but also John Wick felt a lot more passive this time. Uh, even even though the plot also happened to him in the first movie, in this one he's reacting more than actually like setting out to do things. So, I don't know. I just feel like the emotional core of the first movie helped quite a bit. I really enjoyed this movie. There's so much good stuff here, and we could talk more about that. But I want to say this up front. Like, I saw a lot of people saying, like, oh, man, this is even better than the first one. There's so much action in here. And I'm of the opinion that the action has to mean something. And I think mm. so much of the action in this movie didn't mean anything other than, you know, raising the kill count to the movie. Yeah. I, I, I you know, I sympathize with a lot of what you said, Devendra. Um, so I, I think I think. In my opinion, yeah, really quickly, uh, I think a keen act in the chat makes a really good point. Yeah. It's not the car he really wants back. Mm. So when you talk about character building, I think that you over, don't, don't overlook that fact. Fair enough. Fair enough. Um, so I really enjoy this movie. I think the action is great throughout, but I agree with Devendra that uh, the emotional core of the movie wasn't there as much. And the all, all the stuff of... The, the things that John Wick 1 did, John Wick 2 does more of, right? Yeah. And does it in a more yeah. intense way. For good or ill, the plot is more and more ludicrous. The dialogue is more and more ludicrous, in my opinion. It just, But here's the thing. Everyone in this movie knows what kind of movie they're making. Everyone in this movie knows what kind of movie they're making. And it feels like they're in on the joke of how ridiculous they're sounding when they speak these lines in a very wooden fashion that are very portentous and very ridiculous and referring to this massive world. You know, uh, this guy, the, I was listening to the screenwriting, uh, the Q&A podcast with uh, Jeff Goldsmith, the screenwriter, talk about his his process. And 
he likes it when someone says something and it's not like an onion where you're peeling you're peeling down into a character or a person but like the opposite where you, you someone says something and they reveal like this whole other world above this you know the situation that there's this whole like t- the ta- the high table and all the the continent and all that stuff and that's something that I think John Wick actually does really well regardless of how mm-hmm. inconsistent the gold coins are and all that stuff like I think you just get a sense oh wow there's this whole other world uh that you you barely glimpse in this movie and yeah that world is ridiculous and completely implausible and <laughs> I like everyone... how every character that he runs into knows who he is right yeah like and... it, literally every person is like hey john <laughs> it's like oh but it is not... just so it's so confident in what it's doing you know yeah, uh, yeah. the the uh when they're tr- when they're communicating out bounties it's a, a call center that looks like it's from the 1970s, you know, with all these women wearing this uh, these stylish fashions and glasses that have tattoos all over them. I mean, that just takes uh, a kind of boldness and a commitment to this world yeah. that uh, is admirable, even though it is, in my opinion, pretty absurd. None of uh, it makes sense, <laughs> and it doesn't yeah. make any sense. And it doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make any sense at all. Uh, but in John Wick 1, that was okay because, like yeah. you said, Devendra, emotional core, building this character, building his relationships with people. And uh, in this movie, not so much. And they so I think – uh, Yeah, John, John Wick 2, better action but not as good uh, – not as emotionally satisfying in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I will just say one other thing before we move to spoilers, which is that uh, I thought it was hilarious like that the, the – the, uh, the what do you call it the rules that are introduced into this world seemingly arbitrarily like uh <laughs> the the idea a major plot point in this movie is this marker john wick to, uh, owes something to this guy santini and uh it's because of this marker because of that thing that he did that's referred to in john wick one is this marker that he has to he has to fulfill this marker and ian mcshane at one point says Hey, it's you know, it's a no-brainer. The only two rules of this world are number one, don't do business on continental grounds, and number two, you never break a marker. And I'm like, really? Was that introduced in John Wick Chapter One? I think they just made that up arbitrarily for number two. <laughs> and uh, I just thought that was funny that they're introducing all these rules left and right uh-huh. uh, and trying to do it in an organic way, and it's not quite working. But I appreciate the effort. You know, it's kind of like at a- least the marker explains something, right? Like if he was this bad dude. That everyone was afraid of. Like, how the heck did he just get out and try to have a normal life? And right. maybe he basically struck a deal with the devil. And I, I kind of buy that. I like that bit of, uh, you know, rewriting history there. Yeah. Any other thoughts, guys? Or shall <laughs> I, we move to sports? I like when he, like when he said, "Well, what did what did he ask you to do?" And he's like, "Oh, I, I didn't ask him. I didn't ask that part." It's like, oh, <laughs> yeah. Well, you, yeah. you probably sh- maybe you should have asked that before you maybe said should. no. Because he kind of <laughs> knew what was going to happen, right? Like you say yeah. no to this guy, like it's not going to be good for you and your puppy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, all right. Well, let's move on into spoilers for John Wick Chapter Two, starting right now. Now you're looking for the secret. Trying to see this coming. No, but you won't find it because, of course, you're not going to see this coming. You're not really looking. I have been puzzling over how it works. You don't really want to work it out. Who's in the box? I have been dying to tell you. I want to tell you my secret. You want to be fooled. So let me just say this, guys: the ending action sequence in the Hall of Mirrors is. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's probably going to be up there in my favorite action scenes of all time. Are you kidding me? I thought it was incredible. Oh yeah. man. Like, logistically, how they filmed there without seeing any cameras uh, in the frame. <laughs> the entire space looks very convincingly like an actual museum. 
Uh-huh. Devendra, did you? Uh, there was a subway stop that he got. This is, takes place in New York. Yeah. There's a subway stop that was like completely white with like these neon yes, lights. Yes, that is the New Fulton Station, I believe. Oh, okay, so, so it's, a, it's a real place. It looks very ethereal. It looks unlike any other subway station because yeah. there isn't like decades of grime on it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's incredible. Uh, I, yeah, the visuals of that whole final sequence I thought were amazing. And I think a lot of the museum is the. Uh, it looks like it's at one of the museums here too. So. Yeah, yeah, but you know they had to figure out a way to to actually kill a lot of people in in, in it. You know, <laughs> it, without, in it. without to clear it uh, out for the movie. Yeah. Well, you know they're getting blood everywhere and stuff, or maybe it's digital blood. Who knows? Who knows what they're doing? I don't know. I'm not. I'm not sure how they made it. But, but I, I was yeah, very well, impressed. Tell me with more about why you like this mirror scene because I was pretty underwhelmed by it. Mm, I just thought the way the the conception of it and uh, the fact that you. Like technically, how challenging it is, you know, the fact that you never see any mirrors, um, and or you never see the camera. You never is, see. Uh, you never see the camera. That's what I mean to say. But yeah. Dave, I present to you Enter the Dragon. I present to you so many goddamn action movies where they do this mirror, you know, final boss battle thing. Like it's not, it's not a new idea. It's not really original. I don't think they did. They didn't really push it in any way, right? It's that is another thing that kind of disappointed me. Like, I feel like they could have been a little more creative and that's what annoys me too. A little, um, like that. My favorite memory from this movie is that just like subtle, the subtle shootout was common. Like how, how interesting because, is that? because that's something you've never seen anything. Like, I, right? I have never yeah. seen it before. It's also done really well and just shot really well. And it's so short. Um, but yeah, yeah, I don't know. So I guess I can see what you're saying about the mirror scene. It just felt a little underwhelming to me. Like I was more impressed with the like with the rain fight, honestly, from the first movie. Mm, interesting. Well, I love the mirror scene in this movie, and yeah, I, I, there. Were, what other action scenes? There was that whole montage of all the assassins, and also apparently, by the way, uh, all homeless people are assassins too. By the way, yeah, I, yeah, I have entire. complicated feelings about that too because it <laughs> felt that feels like a shitty thing to imply about people in new york who <laughs> genuinely have problems like i understand it's a comic book and i understand all that yeah yeah, yeah. um people are also afraid of these you know of of homeless people like they walk into a subway car and nobody will like be near them because uh they're a lot of times people are just like afraid they don't want to like associate with this and the idea that oh they're all secretly assassins it's kind of interesting <laughs> i don't know I think yeah. it was cool that uh, you know you keep hearing this story about how he killed a bunch of dudes with a pencil, and then yep, we get to yep. see him kill the dudes with a pencil. It's like, oh, that's how he did it, everybody. Yeah, I don't think a pencil would actually behave that way, though. Yeah. I, <laughs> like, Maybe. I thought the pencil scene in Dark Knight was more convincing than the yes. idea that like a pencil yes. could go wow. into a guy's neck. Or, or the born identity. Like, that's also one of yeah. those things where it's like, dude, just just keep the mystery. You don't you don't need to show it to me. We've seen this guy. Like right. take out a buttload of dudes and yeah, like with, the, with like gun cut, you don't need the pencil scene. The pencil scene, yeah, is a little bit like I wonder if it would have been more effective if they hadn't shown it because they didn't show yeah. the what he did, you know, that night to get him out of the business, right? They never yes. flash back yes. to that, yes. and and I think that's a good decision because whatever you invent in your head is going to be much better than what they show. Uh-huh. Um, so yep. yeah, yeah. Uh, so I thought the plot line with. Uh, what's her name? The uh, the woman Gianna D'Antonio, played mm-hmm. by Claudia Gerini. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I think that they should have done more to make her an evil person, because I, I, without that, I think that opening action scene with him killing all these guards, he's just killing people who are doing their jobs, right? Yeah, and that, the that first, was his job. Like, in the first movie, this. in the first movie. He was doing the same thing, but they were defending uh-huh. a despicable person, a.k.a. Right, right, you know, right. Alfie Allen's character. In this movie, okay, Claudia uh, Gerini's character, Gianna, she, uh, 
she took away that guy's business, that black guy who I don't even uh-huh. know if you – Mr. What's – I don't even remember what his name was. But uh, she took away Those his guys, business. Mm-hmm. Uh, and apparently did so in a very cruel way, right? And that's basically all you know about her. And you don't even yeah. know, like, any details about that or whether that was fair. Um, Akoni, Akoni was that guy's name, played by Chukudi Iwuji. Uh, but, yeah, it's... I don't it, think you're supposed to think that she deserved to die. Yeah. Yeah, and but then in that case, it's like, yeah, he... I guess I enjoyed rooting for him killing all these dudes in yeah, the first the moral, one. The moral complexity was a lot more straightforward yeah. in the first movie. And maybe yeah, he they're was trying to be more morally complex in this one. And, yeah. But I don't, know, I don't know that John Wick is an inherently morally complex series. I, I don't know if yeah. moral complexity and the John Wick character mix very well. Mm-hmm. Because I think the pleasure that people get out of these movies is watching him kill a bunch of bad dudes. Yeah. I, don't think I, I think that the, the idea – this one is set entire, almost entirely in the world of assassinry. Yep. You know, and it's the Assassin's Guild uh, having infighting. And I that I kind of took that as being like, well, everybody is evil. So he's just eliminating all the evil people in the evil world. No, that's fair enough. That's fair you enough. know, they're all assassins. They're, they're all trying to get a seat at the assassin table to do assassinry. Here's what I was. Here's OK. That's a fair point, Jeff. Here's another thing that I was mildly disappointed by. The incredibly fat Asian dude. I thought, you know. He, that guy has got to be an incredible badass. If he's going to be an assassin, you, you've got to be really shot good at in the head and still doesn't yeah. die. I get. Yeah, I guess I just wanted him to be to do more something interesting, you know. Versus, yeah. oh, he's just a really fat Asian assassin. I think um, he was like a sumo wrestler, though. Like they, yeah. that's kind of what they were painting him as. Uh, somebody in the trap room actually brought up that scene and the way it was like cross cut with a couple of the other right. fights, which was kind of yeah. interesting. Like because. If they had just presented those fights to us one after another, um, probably wouldn't have been as interesting. That was some good editing. Uh, I agreed. Yeah, yeah. But apparently, Gonna, some uh, you know some assassins like John Wick are, are get paid very well. Yeah, and some of them need to perform on the street. You know, still. And, <laughs> I don't. Uh, I, the logic of any of that doesn't make sense <laughs> to me. Like, so they're secretly assassins, but they're begging on the street. Like it's part of the business. I don't. Well, I was, talking about, I was talking about the violinist yeah. street performer. Yeah, but yeah, yeah. But yeah, don't also Lauren, Lawrence Fishburne. Hard. Well, buskers, who knows? Buskers can earn a lot, right? But, uh, yeah, the, the whole beggar system of assassins, I'm not sure about. Uh, what did you guys think of the ending? I think one of the things that's good about this series is how well they establish the rules so that when John Wick does, quote-unquote, business on company grounds uh, or on intercontinental yeah. grounds, it is shocking. Like, I, yeah. I think I gasped when he yeah, shot. Yeah, that was the, it was a loud gunshot, too. Like, it was surprising. Yeah. In many when, ways, I, yeah. when he shot Santini in, in the restaurant at the end. Mm-hmm. That was a shocking moment, and uh, I was a little bit disappointed that he wasn't punished in the same way the character from the first one was by getting yep. killed. That, that would have been pretty bold. But well, Ian I McShane hand yeah, waves him away. Him. He's going to get killed. Like that's the plan. They just he likes him enough that it's like okay. he gives him a head start yeah. and excommunicates yeah. him from intercontinental or uh, the continental. I'm sorry, I'm, I'm not trying to. Yeah. It's it's not intercontinental. It's <laughs> I continental. like that. Uh... <laughs> that he's gonna have a meeting, so he's like, "Okay, I'm gonna have a meeting with with you guys. I need like um like a second AD to like wrangle a bunch of people up and get them to walk uh, all nonchalantly in the park for me while I do my meeting. Um, you know, <laughs> wardrobe you can you can do your own wardrobe, um, you guys, but I don't want anybody looking too samey. Uh, we're gonna have you know you're gonna start on this side, you're gonna start on that side, you're gonna be walking back and forth. Uh, 
But, uh, you know, everybody sort of mill around. You're going to, you know, we're, we're gonna, I don't know how long I'm actually going to be talking to John Wick, but at a certain point, I'm going to tell everybody to stop moving. It's going to be really cool. <laughs> we'll recreate that scene from The Matrix, guys. It'll be awesome. Yeah. This, is a, this is a movie series that if you think even, even just slightly, <laughs> even just cursorily about the world, it the falls logistics. apart very rapidly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, but all that being said, Jeff Kanata, are you looking to are you looking forward to John Wick Chapter Three? I think it sets up a Chapter Three in a really fun way. I think mm-hmm. it's a really yeah. cool, you know, you you have stacked the deck completely against our hero, and uh, I, I think it adds it's a wonderful urgency. And the fact that this one, I like that it's called Chapter Two, and the fact mm-hmm. that it picked up, you know, pretty much right after the end of the first movie with his unfinished business, it makes me think that a Chapter Three would be picking right up after this, and you know concluding the story that leads to him being fully retired. Uh, I think that's a pretty tantalizing, for fans of the Jan, John Wick story, I think that's a pretty tantalizing third chapter. Devendra, are you mm-hmm. psyched for chapter three? Oh, most definitely. I think just the, the setup of that, honestly, is a lot more interesting than the setup they gave for this movie. Like, I want to see what happens in a world where everyone is completely against John Wick and he can't just, like, stroll in somewhere and people will know him and he right. can get and a fucking bulletproof. And, and yeah. respect him, but also walk in and get a bulletproof suit, <laughs> uh, yeah. you know, immediately. Like, I want to, well, I want that character just, like, up against everything. And maybe let's make this as, like, a straight up, like, you know, Fury Road type action movie where it's just, like, a straight, a straight shot of pure action, very little dialogue. Well, the cool thing, too, is... Um, you know, this is like John Wick versus all of the assassins in America. And the thing that they're setting up is it's gone international. <laughs> so, I mean, they have full reign to, you know, have it be like the Street Fighter roster of, you know, <laughs> representing Brazil. It's, you know, <laughs> assassin with, you know, mask. And it's going to be it, – it can go full nutso of, of the, like, international – uh, rogues gallery that starts going after him. <laughs> so I listened to, as I mentioned, the Q&A podcast with Jeff Goldsmith, the screenwriter, talk about what he thought the sequel might be. Would you guys be interested to hear his sure. thoughts on that? Yeah. So uh, he, he specu- So he, nothing's been written, nothing's been outlined or anything. Like he, he's just speculating, so this might not happen. But he said, and but this guy wrote John Wick 1 and 2, so he yeah. probably has some say in it. A little bit. He, he said that what he would like is for John Wick to end up uh, in hiding in some visually interesting city internationally, like Tokyo or something, <laughs> and uh, and for him to intersect with a storyline that has nothing to do with him, like hmm. uh, he intersects with oh uh, maybe it's like damsel in distress or he someone mm-hmm. someone needs to pay a debt or something that John Wick helps to resolve right. Um, but that it might be completely disconnected from yeah. anything that's happened. In, well, in, he in, still needs to find his redemption, right? Like the first movie was about revenge. This movie was about more revenge, I guess. <laughs> more revenge. Uh, third movie is redemption. I get like just thinking of this in terms of a decent story arc and right, maybe how right. the uh, the Bourne movies went in a way. Right. Right. Uh, right. Maybe he yeah. finds some some person who's been wronged by someone like him, you know, mm-hmm. and needs to atone for. Oh that man, that that final scene from Bourne Supremacy that. Always yeah, gets great, me. Like, think, great scene. I like in terms of like a sequel to an action movie that ended up being so much. Well, that ended up being very different and very interesting from the original. Like, I look to the Born Supremacy in that movie. Even though they set up so much of the emotional core from the first movie, that movie had its own thing going on too. And I wish, uh, yeah, I wish they had applied some of that template more here. Uh, I have to say though, guys, the funniest bit 
in this movie to me was uh, when he gets to the Italian uh, Continental Hotel and the guy's like, you're not here for the Pope, are you? <laughs> yeah, that like, was great. Like, that no, was no, great. no. Okay. Okay. We're cool. We're cool. Because <laughs> I, I, w- I would have loved to know what would happen at that point. You know, like w- would all the rules go away? I don't know. Yeah. All right. Well, those are our thoughts on John Wick Chapter 2. It sounds like we all enjoyed it. Um, but had varying degrees of problems with it. This has been the Slash Filmcast. Find more episodes of our podcast at SlashFilmcast.com. Email us at SlashFilmcast.gmail.com. Our music comes from AdamWarrock.com. Our spoiler bumper comes from filmmaker Kyle Hillinger. And uh, stay tuned to hear what we'll be reviewing next week. In the meantime, Devendra Hardor, where can you find more of your work on the internet? Oh, I am at Devendra on Twitter. And uh, check out the Engadget podcast, too. I read about tech there. Hit us, Jeff Kanata. At Jeff Kanata on Twitter uh, with two N's and one T. And I have uh, two other shows, a video game show called DLC, which you can find at 5x5.tv slash DLC. And I have a comedy science show called We Have Concerns, which you can find at wehaveconcerns.com. And find my newly relaunched blog, which I'm updating every day, at davechen.net. Next week, we're going to be reviewing A Cure for Wellness, the new film by Gore Verbinski. Really interesting film. Looking forward mm-hmm. to talking with you guys about that. Thanks for listening to the official podcast of SlashFilm.com. We're out.